Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by CCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. United States history is full of events which describes efforts to build and maintain its democratic narrative. These events have been highlighted over the years in an effort to portray to the world that the United States is the leading democracy and has legitimately earned the title of American exceptionalism. For African-Americans and racial minorities, the claims of being the leading democracy and of American exceptionalism have rung hollow in light of the historic oppression which has been exhibited within this country. The hollowness of these claims was never more challenged than on January 6, 2021, when a mob led by Donald Trump and his allies engaged in a violent attack on this nation's capital in an attempt to disrupt the congressional confirmation of the election of Joseph Biden as the 46th president of the United States. Presently, a special congressional committee is engaged in a series of public hearings which are designed to publicly report its findings as to the underlying causes and responsibilities for the January 6th political uprising. At the same time, 2022 midterm elections are being conducted and many of the same people or their supporters who participated in the uprising are actively seeking election to political posts which will allow them to sanction or excuse the January 6th activity. And these 2022 political campaigns, a large number of African-Americans and people of color are candidates for elections to a number of national, state, and local posts some in opposition to January 6th politics, and others, surprisingly, in support of it. Tonight, we are going to discuss the intersection of the January 6th insurrection, its impact, and the political imperative for African-Americans and people of color during the upcoming election. Joining us for this discussion, Dr. Serena Seabrook, the Executive Director of Blueprint North Carolina, and Marcus Bass, the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina and the Deputy Director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. So first of all, to the two of you, thank you for uh, joining us this evening. Thanks so much, it's my honor to be with you. Okay. Thanks for having well, me. Well, to get us started, let's start with uh, Dr. Siebrens. Uh, can you just ex describe to our audience the uh, work and focus of uh, Blueprint North Carolina, some of the great things that you all are doing over there? 
I'd be happy to. Um, so my name is Serena Sebring. Um, I'm executive director of Blueprint North Carolina. Blueprint came into being in 2007 as a partnership to really foster uh, collaboration amongst groups that were doing civic engagement and um, advocacy work. Over the last um, several years, we've been growing for um, in, in a lot of ways, both in terms of the scale of the partnership. We went from uh, just seven partners in 2007 to over 60 formal partners um, across North Carolina. Um, these are partner organizations that are doing progressive um, work on a number of levels, both grassroots organizations, um, advocates, uh, folks who are doing voter registration, get out the vote and education of voters. And increasingly, we're doing work around election protection um, in this time. And I'm so glad to talk some more about that, especially given what you just shared in the opening, Professor Joyner. Uh, Blueprint is a commitment to a movement for progressive change in North Carolina. Um, and our partnership is deep and very much active uh, in creating the change that we very much need to see in this time. So happy to talk about our work more. And thanks for the invitation. Okay. And uh, likewise, uh, Marcus, can you uh, describe the uh, work and focus of Advanced North Carolina and the uh, North Carolina Black Alliance? Sure, I can. And uh, thanks again. Good evening to everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, the North Carolina Black Alliance, we'll start with the 501c3 organization, is a nonpartisan coalition or network of our historically Black institutions across the state of North Carolina. When we think about these institutions that have carried us from uh, moments of emancipation to deeper sense of liberation. Uh, these institutions are in counties across the state of North Carolina, primarily our institution of faith. The Black Church across North Carolina has had a prolific role in advancing the quality of life for North Carolinians and residents across the country. We get all of our uh, movement from um, slavery up until now coming from a lot of these spaces. And so we help support these institutions of faith across the state of North Carolina directly working with our churches. I know around election time, folks uh, usually hear of souls to the polls. We help coordinate that with our other partners across the state. Our second institution that we work with are our academic institutions. More directly, our Black students, our Black college students on historically Black college campuses and Black college students in our community college and PWI campuses working to provide information around changes uh, to elections, around deep democracy issues, hoping to provide students with an opportunity to see how they can use uh, democracy as a tool for freedom and liberation. We also work with our governmental institution, uh, primarily with our Black elected officials, which is our historical membership in the North Carolina Black Alliance. Folks may be familiar with some of the founders of our institution, uh, former Orange County Commissioner Moses Carey, former mayor pro tem of the city of Raleigh, Brad Thompson. These individuals started with an understanding after uh, the loss of Harvey Gantt uh, at a congressional level that we have to do something different in the black community, following the ties that bind uh, Democrats to the democratic institutions or Republicans to the Republican institution, oftentimes leave black communities without. And so they mustered together and formulated with uh, our civic and service organizations across the state of North Carolina this North Carolina Black Alliance over 30 years ago. And today we work around the issues of environmental racism around criminal justice reform, around access to education, access to healthcare, making sure that these groups in community are able to harness their power to create change, not just through the political system, but through all of these systems. And on the C4 side, uh, about 10 years ago, the organizations decided that there needed to be a separate but equal sense of firepower, compliance and accountability on the elected side. And so they raised the C4 Advanced Carolina to help continue that work and mission. 
within the legal compliance uh, areas of a 501c4. Folks may remember Citizens United, which uh, invited the opportunity for corporations to spend unlimited uh, you know, campaign contributions towards elected officials. That process also created a space for C4 institutions to stand up what has often been referred to as dark money. Um, but we know in our community, our dark money will never equal the millions, and if not billions of dollars that go into these elections. So we try to make sure we help uh, constituents and community make endorsements and suggestions on the appropriate side of Advanced Carolina to ensure that their political power is met at the ballot box with an intentional decision to vote somebody in or take somebody out who's not holding true to the aims of what we need in our community. So um, excited about that work, excited to be on uh, the Black Alliance side in partnership with Blueprint and the amazing network of partners, uh, making sure that we're doing both and we're building a movement uh, with folks that is deeper than the ballot, but then also focusing on the ballot at the appropriate time to make sure our individuals have the information, tools, and access and are protected at the polls. Well, let me just say as, uh, as full disclosure to uh, our audience that uh, over the last couple of decades, I've worked with uh, both of these groups and they have done some uh, outstanding work uh, within uh, our communities. And uh, particularly as we talk about this notion of uh, election protection uh, and uh, they've been very, engaged in working to ensure not only that uh, African-Americans have the, uh, uh, the right and opportunities uh, to vote, uh, but also that uh, at the end of the night, those votes will be counted, uh, which is a very important process that we are dealing with here. So uh, it is an honor for me uh, to be associated uh, with them. Now, well, I wanna kind of take you back uh, just a little bit uh, to prior to the uh, 2020 election, probably uh, a minute before the 2020 elections uh, were uh, over. Did you anticipate at that time that we would have in this country an attempt by a mob of people to invade the capital of the United States to prevent the confirmation of the uh, presidential elections uh, uh, vote? Uh, in this uh, in this in this country, I I don't think that we did, um, and I think we should have. I think that the um, idea of an armed mob storming the Capitol to disrupt the smooth transition of power um, in a democracy is um, not in our lifetimes experience, but does exist in our collective history. If we look back to Wilmington and the 1898 massacre, we should never again say that this came out of nowhere or that it was unprecedented. In fact, we have seen um, political violence, racist political violence as an attempt to, uh, to really wash away progressive gains uh, at many points in history, but specifically the Wilmington massacre is precedent for what we saw on January 6th. And I think it's important to acknowledge that as a starting point. Okay. And Marcus? I would also just add North Carolina, um, uniquely as Serena mentioned, not just has an interesting past in kind of leading these coups, uh, the coup d'etats against democracy. Also most recently around the COVID-19 um, pandemic, when we saw individuals attempt to storm our state legislature armed to the teeth. Uh, this notion of uh, individuals that are claiming patriotism, actually anti-patriots in reality, uh, anti-democracy in reality, 
uh, seems to be very much so nestled in North Carolina. I'm, I recall even looking at the um, videos on the day of the insurrection, January 6th, seeing uniquely in the background waving in the images are the United States flag, the Confederate flag, and very interestingly, the flag of the state of North Carolina. So I think in a lot of ways, uh, us as a uh, individual group of people uh, thinking about this may not have been prepared, but the writing was on the wall or maybe in the Constitution long before uh, we saw it on January 6th. Well, you know, over the history, African-Americans have fought mightily for the uh, right to vote. And as you described earlier, you have been engaged in efforts to protect the right to vote. And, uh, and I think a large part of that is uh, the desire uh, to be participants in this democracy because there is a belief that, the, that this democracy works best for us. Uh, if, 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 if that's a genuine thesis, what is the impact of uh, these efforts to overturn and overthrow these tenets, these basic tenets of democracy as it relates to uh, African-Americans and, uh, and people of color? Serena, why don't we start with you? Thanks. I think um, <clears throat> I think that our people, that Black people, uh, are perhaps the greatest um, in in many ways, but certainly in terms of faith. Um, I think that we have had faith in a democracy that we have not seen yet. We have believed, um, as many of us do in our everyday lives, that collective decisions are the best. That, that it is the we of us that, that rises to um, creating the policies and the cultures that our communities deserve, that, that actually we talk about what democracy really offers as possibility, if not reality. I think that it is an act of faith. It is um, our, every time we go to the ballot box, every time we uh, open our email and read about candidates, it is again, a commitment to a faith in something that we have been promised but not received yet. So I just, I think that that is important to name. In North Carolina, we have a long history, unfortunately, of having to overcome tremendous odds in order to participate in democracy. And that has included acts of racist political violence all the way dating back to Wilmington in 1898 and before. But even very recently, we still see, and specifically in some of our rural areas in particular, um, attempts to intimidate Black voters, uh, to disrupt the building of Black power that are um, every bit an echo to uh, the Jim Crow past, to uh, the enslavement of our people, to um, a really a, a very old kind of, um, of disruption of democracy that we saw North Carolinians very willing to participate in on January 6th. Our organization has been tracking what is the, the relationship specifically between North Carolina and the, and the insurrection on January 6th of 2021. And what we found was that many North Carolinians actually made the journey up to participate in that insurrection. We've tracked at least nine busloads. Um, and those folks went up uh, and came home and are still in our communities, uh, continuing to train to increasingly disrupt um, the democracy, the smooth transition of power that our people continue to believe in um, and continue to practice as an act of faith and courage. 
And Mark? I, I think there is a double entendre here when we are talking about um, tenants of democracy. And I think it's interesting that you use that word, Attorney Joyner, tenants of democracy, because I think for a lot of individuals, they want us to be tenants of democracy, when in reality, we own this democracy. This is a democracy that is not uh, a space for us to be participants in, right? I think the general notion of that is actually uh, why we have had to fight so long in this democratic process for equality, because some individuals want to parcel out, right, as tenants. Uh, democracy. When we actually own this, our participation is not based on uh, someone leasing democracy to us, but it's the fact that we have the right to build this thing from the ground up. One of the things that I think as we continue to kind of reference back to the Wilmington coup, the start of the Wilmington massacre was about the fact that we have more Black elected officials in government at that point in time than any other time in our nation's history, up until today, when we see the election of President Obama. And so this notion that um, we are participants in or, or, or uh, tenants of a democracy that we actually own is a part of a conditioning that we have to dismantle on not just our side as individuals that are trying to reclaim our stake in democracy, but also for those that actually feel as if they own this democracy, so much so that they're willing to risk uh, tearing down or dismantling this democracy, which is fragile to begin with, just for their stake in the ownership, which is really based in white supremacy. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we are speaking with uh, Dr. Serena Sebram, who is the Executive Director of Blueprint North Carolina, and uh, Marcus Bad, who is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina, and is the Deputy Director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. And we're talking about the uh, January 6th insurrection and its impact on uh, African-American politics, where we are, where we have been, and where we are going in this uh, process. But we're gonna have to take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us and we'll be right back to uh, continue this discussion. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website.
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. Pearl Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with our guests about the January 6th insurrection and the impact this event has had on African-American politics. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dr. Serena Sebring. She is the Executive Director of Blueprint North Carolina and Marcus Bass. He is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina and the Deputy Director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. Both of you were talking about or answering um, Irv's question about what the January African-Americans, um, especially as it relates to our understanding of the political process, our role uh, in the political process. And I wanted to get your reactions to um, the, the optics of the insurrection on African-Americans' participation in the political process. And I wanna ask you if you could share your, your thoughts and observations about the impact of the optics of seeing the way the white insurrectionists were being treated compared to the way Black, Black Lives Matter protesters were being treated and how that might have an impact on, on individuals, particularly African-Americans view of their full ability to participate in the democratic process. And Marcus, let's start with you. I'll be um, quick because I really want to get down to the data and science behind this, which is what I'm hearing from Blueprint, the work that Serena is doing. The first thing that it makes me think about, um, April, is the fact that on January 6th, we saw individuals not retake democracy or try to take over democracy. They really tried to take it back. They felt as if they lost something in that um, process of which Biden won the election and Trump lost the election. In this case, uh, their riot, uh, they thought it was their right. Uh, When we think about riot in America, first of all, I want to add a level of context or really uh, unpack riot. We have a white riot and then we have black riot, right? White riot, when we throw T, corporations uh, investment in the middle of the uh, water, that is coined as the cornerstone of democracy. When we have a black riot, individuals that are enslaved in chattel slavery uh, trying to seek liberation and emancipation by just walking off of their uh, uh, from their slave quarters into freedom, that is seen as a threat to democracy. And then you have another white riot, which is individuals burning uh, the bodies of these individuals that they have captured uh, from Africa, brought here to work for free. And the response to them trying to emancipate themselves, our ancestors, is a white riot. And then you see black riot silenced or suppressed. Let's fast forward to um, the civil rights movement, where we see Um, a white riot around uh, prohibition, right, in the streets, individuals were throwing liquor, Um, you know, a moonshine out here, uh, hiding from the government, running from responsibility. Uh, 20 years after that, we talk about V for Victory, when our troops came back and rioted because of the unequal treatment that they were receiving here as they were fighting for individuals abroad. That riot was met with a quelching silence that was only supported by uh, the elevation of these hoods, these large urban development areas, while other individuals had large stake of, um, you know, westward expansion and were given opportunities uh, through the federal government to create real housing opportunities. And then we have today this January 6th riot. So it is all, I think, emblematical of the difference or difference that is 
when individuals that are considered the uh, standard bearer of white society are displeased with government and their response, which is oftentimes more violent, uh, oftentimes more uh, costs more money for the government. Uh, but then when you compare that to just individuals coming out uh, to protest police safety and the question of police safety when police are actually killing unarmed black individuals, that, and it's our individual response, it's not even a riot, it's a period of mourning. It's the initial stage of mourning the loss of someone that is met with uh, a more violent response than we ever saw uh, happen in January 6th. I've been across North Carolina like Serena in a bunch of protests uh, from Charlotte to Elizabeth City. And one thing that is very apparent is the unequal treatment that individuals are faced with by protesting. And oftentimes the unequal treatment is coming by the individuals that caused the harm in community to start with. Whereas on January 6th, we saw individuals working in uh, coordination with some of these entities, while their brothers and sisters that were armed uh, and had no idea were often left to be killed uh, or trampled in that riot. So that difference uh, between white riot and black riot, I think really makes me um, respond to the question that way. I, I think that it's, um, it's interesting to have the commentary that you just offered on culture, Marcus, on, on the, you know, the ways that we use words to describe and define these acts that then are responded to. I think the other piece that I would add to that assessment is one about structure. So, so the police and, and law enforcement as structure, I think is a very important aspect to consider as we try to explain these really different outcomes. And they are very different outcomes. Let's be clear. I've been arrested as other Moral Mondays arrestees have been for overstaying our welcome in government buildings, um, certainly without, without carrying any spears uh, or arms or, um, or assaulting anybody. So I know uh, very, very well that there's different treatment um, for folks who are approaching uh, government bodies with protest um, than, than the, what we're watching here. And, and I think we have to go back to understand what has been the role of law enforcement um, in, in, this, uh, in this history and understanding that the origins of law enforcement as we know it today um, are in, in, in the roots of slave patrollers who, who existed in fact to, to suppress and prevent insurrections, I'm using air quotes, you can't see, but I'm using air quotes around insurrections um, of enslaved people, um, that, that that very threat created the structure of law enforcement that we now um, see in, in its evolution in, in the Capitol. And, and over time, the law enforcement, uh, the role of law enforcement in voting rights and voting access, specifically in the South and for Black people, has been more often to prevent access to uh, those rights than to enable it. Um, and, and so once again, we see the role of law enforcement being to, um, to protect, kind of who do you protect and serve? To protect the interests of a far, this time, a far right and unashamed, emboldened um, force that, that has no interest in playing by the rules of democracy uh, that it's set up. So one of the things that we appreciate um, about you both is uh, sharing your insight and bringing in the history. And whenever we're talking about present day circumstances, one can't um, analyze them in a vacuum. You really do have to bring in, you know, what's happened in the past to explain where we are today. Um, so thank you for that. Um, 
And so as we're thinking about the impact, what do you think the impact will be on the perspective and, and even the reality of Black politicians, people who are engaged in democracy um, with the televised January 6th hearings? Because I know before that, it, it really did appear as though there would be no accountability at all. Even though we knew that if this was a group of you know black and brown people, the accountability would have been swift. It would have been harsh. Um, so we're at a moment where at least we're getting some information and actually quite a bit of information about what happened. And, and it looks as though there hopefully there will be some accountability. Can you share your thoughts on what impact that will have going forward? Serena? Well, I know that the impact it's having on my life right now is high quality primetime viewing. I feel like these hearings have really been a gift to the political education and really civic education of, um, of, of those of us who live in this country in a way that I haven't, I haven't seen before. I'm really grateful for um, both the, um, the access that we now have to watching um, a process of justice unfold at this scale, and also the quality of um, the argumentation that we've seen and the ways that we are, you know, uh, treated with, with uh, videos of Josh Hawley running away from the same insurrectionist he's pumping his fist to. I feel like it's both high quality entertainment and education. I'm very grateful um, for the hearings and those who are leading them. You know, we, we deal with um, plenty of deconstructing of lies in our uh, existence. And I have felt very appreciative of that unpacking of this lie in this very national, intentional, congressional, doc documented, archive way. I've enjoyed every one of these eight episodes, 16 hours, plus 100 uh, to 1,000 additional interviews that we haven't seen in this conversation because it's interesting. I thought an elephant never forgets, Attorney Joyner, uh, but it, it, it seems to be this is reminding us a lot of what we have experienced, what we lived through in January 6th. And I think one thing that's interesting in these congressional hearings, right, because we know we need the DOJ accountability. We need that teeth. But to have these hearings being held by individuals that were a part of this January 6th insurrection, that were in the building when their lives were being endangered and threatened, and to see them actually lead these hearings, it almost adds an additional level of credibility to their experience and their story. Uh, I think it is interesting to see um, the uh, number of testimonies that are coming out even after the fact individuals are coming forward. And the response that not just from a congressional space, not just from the DOJ, but from the justice community at large, over the course of the months that we've been hearing these uh, different testimonies, we've seen justice being doled down uh, in some cases fairly. Uh, we just saw recently here when an individual was convicted uh, seven years, he'll be sentenced because of his actions on January 6th, Guy Reffitt. Uh, and, and, and there's other cases where individuals are being brought to justice and facing real time, not just a slap on the wrist as reported, but actual real time. And I think it's only going to get more interesting as we continue to unpack this. And I think one of the things that I've been very curious around, because, you know, folks are used to hot court drama, and there's plenty of uh, drama in these conversations that Serena laid out, but the fact that this is documenting for posterity the fact that this happened, uh, I think is very definitive. And I'm excited to see what's gonna happen with this added pressure that Congress is giving for the DOJ 
to really hold accountable every single individual that tried to compromise our democracy and our government on January 6th. Well, let me just kind of flip it just, just a little bit. Uh, in 2008, African Americans voted in the uh, presidential uh, elections, and I guess down ballot elections at a higher rate uh, than uh, whites uh, in North Carolina and other parts of the country uh, as well. And it clearly, that can be seen as a high point. Uh, since uh, 2008, uh, the uh, participation in elections of African Americans has declined. Uh, in uh, 2008, roughly 95% uh, of African Americans voted for Democrats and the Democratic uh, candidates for various offices. Uh, recent uh, polls indicate that the uh, support that uh, African Americans have for uh, the present administration, which includes uh, the first African American vice president, has declined uh, significantly. Uh, such that it was at one point up to somewhere around 88%, and now it's down to roughly 70%. Uh, uh, and in the middle of this, you have this uh, January 6th uh, insurrection. What is happening to the psyche of our people that there is now a decline in the uh, participation uh, in this pursuit of uh, this uh, democracy, whether they are viewed as tenants or whether they are viewed as owners and uh, co-participants uh, in uh, the process? And does it argue uh, well for our going forward in light of the fact that right now you have a number of prominent African-Americans who are a part of the uh, election denial that are running campaigns uh, talking about the uh, uh, the fallacies of the voting uh, process. Where does that leave us uh, right now? So let's start with Marcus on it. Attorney Joyner, uh, I, I hope I'm getting a grade after this. So I'm, I'm going to try to be very <laughs> careful. Um, you bring up a very valid point. The Democratic establishment for the past 50 to 60 years has been over-reliant on uh, a group of individuals that have never quite been completely respected in regards to their political outcomes, right? Uh, I think it wasn't just this election in 2008 that really showed the power of the black vote. There were plenty of presidential elections prior to. We could think about the movement of Puff Daddy, April, uh, around um, you know the voter die movement. That really was springboarded during the Clinton administration. Uh, we saw individuals in record numbers have been participating well before 2008. I think to attribute um, this turnout of this increase in participation to President Obama's term alone is also negating the fact that Black people have been, number one, in a traumatic relationship with the Democratic experience. The Democratic experience has been violent for Black individuals. When we talk about uh, individuals of other cultures uh, who have received reparations for the violent treatment that they have um, been given, we have yet to spend, uh, see restitution for our continued participation in the civil rights movement. We could talk about the Voting Rights Act. And even back to the 1890s, the period of Reconstruction, where individuals voted at 100% and were met with a violent response. And so I think enough time is not given to give credit to the forward progression of Blacks in this movement. I think too much credit is given to the blip in 2008, in which all of our expectations um, were uh, really fueled by this passion of someone that was running in this historic 
um, you know, way. And I think when we mirror, uh, you know, low income, low poverty communities that were fooled by the 2016 election of President uh, Donald, former President Donald Trump, one term President Donald Trump, uh, their turnout has been diminished since 2016. And so I think this bellwether of 2008 is really an anomaly that we can't compare ourselves to. But what we can look at is the forward progression, even in 2016, where a record number of North Carolinians voted uh, to flip or change the course of history for North Carolina, bringing back the power of the governor, the veto power that saw at one point North Carolina being the best for education, the best place to live. We're still battling back in a very interesting way. And I think what's happening now is the states uh, that are really the main arbitrators of harm when we talk about systemic racism, they're having to stand up more encouraging candidates. They're having to take the responsibility away from the federal government, who oftentimes only reacts based on a local uh, movement of political engagement. I'll toss it uh, to Serena. Thanks, well, Marcus. Before, before we oh, do it, let me uh, just, just stop at this, because we're going to have to take a break uh, right now, and we'll come back uh, to uh, Serena when we start the uh, next uh, segment. This is a very rich uh, and uh, rewarding discussion that uh, the two of you are leading us uh, through. So, but this is the Legal Legal Review, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Serena Sebram, who is the Executive Director of Blueprint North Carolina, and uh, Marcus Bass, who is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina, and is the uh, Deputy Director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. And we're talking about the January 6th uh, a rebellion or insurrection uh, and its impact on the African-American community. I want you to stay with us and we will be right back after we take this break. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently A2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back from the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Seabrook and uh, Dr. Uh, Marcus Bass about the uh, uh, impact of the January 6th insurrection on the African-American uh, community. And when we took our break, uh, Dr. Seabrook was going to add context to uh, uh, points that uh, Marcus made uh, earlier. So, uh, Serena, we flip it to you. Thanks. I think uh, in addition to what Marcus offered, I would say what, what feels most interesting to me in that question is what do we do 
to re get back to full participation? What do we do to engage those who have fallen away? Um, and, and I think one, one aspect of this that I hear from our partners and just in, in my own community is really engaging young people in voting right now, in elections right now. Our young folks are discouraged. Um, they have watched, many of them grown up uh, with an, uh, an unresponsive um, government in, in both our state and in our nation to the concerns that they uh, bring into the conditions of their lives. And so it's very easy to understand why a very smart generation of young people would have big questions about whether or not to invest the faith that our people have for so long in this system. I think that we, um, as, as folks who work towards um, increasing democracy and expanding democracy need to take those concerns and critiques seriously. I think they're valid. And I, I think that the work that we do to, as you said, make sure that every voter votes and that every vote counts is a baseline and a starting place for restoring some faith in our young people. And we very much need to do that. Um, it might not have been uh, the, uh, you know, the responsibility of those of us who will lean into those conversations for why they're disengaged now, but we do have an opportunity and a, and a possibility here um, to bring in the voices of, of the next generations and of tomorrow, and we must. Um, they're going to be grappling with legacies, uh, uh, including climate injustice, um, as well as real concerns about the state of democracy. Uh, and so I think the first thing that we really need to do is listen to and engage young people uh, and specifically young black people um, who, who might not live in urban areas, who live in um, Eastern North Carolina, who attend HBCUs um, and who are uh, asking big and accurate questions about um, their investment in democracy right now. Well, let me just- Yes, Serena. Go, go ahead. Serena, Serena, I appreciate you bringing in, again, a faithful, and, and you kind of started your discussion about talking about uh, the, the Black community has had faith in democracy, which has led to, you know, uh, pushing to be full-fledged participants in our democracy, and that the young people don't have that same type of faith. And as we mentioned before, one of the things we appreciate about the dialogue that we're having is the history that you all are able to provide and to support and to provide context. And when I, the young people, what's in my mind most immediately is, are they aware of the history, right? And, and again, when we look at the challenges that are being made to the types of education that young people across the board are being exposed to, right? So when we think about critical race theory and, this, you know, not even just that, but just kind of the realities of history, like when we're, how do we describe slavery? Do we water it down so that people aren't offended? Do you think that that plays a role in the, the lack of engagement? Like if you don't have an understanding of the efforts and, and how far we've come and, and that that only occurred because there was this and this faith that we can make a change. Do you think that has an impact on the disengagement that we might see with the youth? Thanks, April. I really think this is so important um, on a number of levels. I think that, uh, yes, absolutely. Our educational system has not connected our young folks with the history um, of resistance, or frankly, the, resist, the history of oppression um, that, that, that comes with 
our country and the legacies of democracy. I think the, you know, the, I didn't learn about Wilmington uh, until I was in grad school. Um, I, I did not learn about um, the Wilmington massacre or, or frankly much that I really needed to know about civics, basic civics 101 um, until I reached higher levels of education than we should presume uh, voters need to acquire to participate. So I think fundamentally we must connect with young folks. And, and I think that that is gonna take um, approaches that make that history relevant to what they're seeing today that help them to understand uh, the conditions of, of life today um, with connection to the past. I think that that is very important. But frankly, we sit at a critical juncture when we might not be teaching them any of that at all. Um, if the right and right-wing extremists in particular um, uh, succeed in the efforts that they are pushing all over this state, county by county, our young people uh, stand at risk of more disconnection from our history and therefore more disconnection from uh, informed participation uh, in this system that we need their voices in. Well, let me just, you know, just, just throw in into this uh, mix. Uh, uh, and, and, and April raised, I think, a critical question about youth participation, whatever youth is. Uh, we, right now, we, we're still trying to find the age delineation as to what is uh, youth. But I'm, I, I look at uh, the uh, fact that uh, in 1870, the first African-American U.S. Senator, uh, Hiram uh, Revel out of Mississippi, uh, was elected uh, to office. Uh, then in uh, 1967, uh, Edwin Brooks uh, was the first African-American in modern day to be elected to the uh, U.S. Senate, and both of those were Republicans. Today, we have on the Republican side candidates like uh, Herschel Walker in, uh, in Georgia uh, and other congressional uh, representatives who would represent, to some extent, a measure of youth. And uh, they are seemingly on the non-progressive side, while most African-Americans are uh, progressive uh, and have progressive ideas, uh, and their vote is on a decline. The voting power of other racial minorities is on an upswing. Uh, when you look at the uh, Latino community, when you look at the uh, 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 Asian uh, community, you, we, we see a quest for uh, more uh, political power. Uh, then we see a drop-off when it comes down to our uh, young people. Uh, and there is seemingly an upsurge now with respect to the uh, aftermath of Roe versus uh, Wade. Where are our people at today? And is there now a different uh, perspective with respect to uh, political participation and a lack of respect for this notion of democracy as we understand it today? Well, we can start with either Mark. Mark, why don't we start with you? Young people didn't birth Herschel Walker as a candidate. Young black voters didn't create um, the Mark Robinson character that we have here. So I think it's interesting that we are asking them to save us from ourselves um, without really finding good quality candidates that can answer to the situations or the ills of today. I think that's the real question. Um, one of the things I'm gonna take us to Sampson County, a little church called First Baptist Church, where I learned you can't put new wine in the old wine skin, Attorney Joyner. 
And here we are not using what the good God and our grandmama taught us in this political equation. I think one of the things that we really have to recognize in our faith in democracy, more so in our understanding of this um, current uh, lack of optimism of young people, young people are not dismayed with democracy. They are showing displeasure with democracy in its current form. We are still trying to make uh, something out of this two-party system that has not supported us in its entirety. We're not talking about what Hiram Rebels and those did. They held a constitutional convention. Which one of our leaders in our legislative caucus have uh, come forward with an option around a constitutional convention at a North Carolina level? Uh, we had, it's been over 100 years, or really over 50, 60 years since we last ratified the Constitution of the state of North Carolina. So I, and, and on, on a larger level, we're still operating off of a document that's 300 years old on a federal level when you wouldn't trust a dentist, a doctor, an attorney, or a preacher, but outside of a preacher, operating off of a document that archaic. It just doesn't work like this. So I think sometimes we are looking at the fish without examining the water. Right. And something's in the water right now, as Pharrell Williams would say, when it comes down to this democracy. And I wouldn't trust uh, my kids swimming in polluted waters, but we want to continue to put them in this polluted democracy without changing the quality of water. And I don't think that always ends at the ballot box. I think there's a conversation that has to be had with the young people around how we can preach to them about the definition of insanity. But then we don't evolve our democratic process. Uh, and I think this over-reliance on the master or the political plantation politic that brought this two-party system, dismantling that is going to help us bring more people into participation. And I do feel like young folks on a local level are voting, right? I think about Chris Suggs in uh, Kinston, North Carolina, uh, one of the younger Black commissioner uh, council persons that just won and won. Uh, and I think about oftentimes how we crucify uh, young Black or even young women candidates whenever they run for office. Um, we are talking about the impact of a uh, Stacey Abrams character and looking at what Georgia did in North Carolina in 2016. We had four Stacey Abrams on the ballot for statewide ticket, four black women attorneys that were running for statewide office that did not get the support of the party or the establishment politic that would have matched the tone of the tempo that the young people want. So I'm just going to stop there. I'm not saying that we um, don't where young people don't have a responsibility, but we're not being responsible with how we have provided this democracy for them? I think, um, I think that the uh, examples that you offered of the right-wing uh, Black uh, uh, electeds and candidates really makes me think about what are the risks of disengagement. Um, the risks of disengagement are that the right will use a very familiar and old Southern strategy to divide and conquer people who share collective interests. And so I think that takes me to really needing to emphasize, again, going back to Wilmington, the power of a Black-led multiracial coalition um, has always been the remedy to what ails us in democracy. It always has been the case that we need more of us and we need to look for connections uh, to, to folks uh, across difference in order to build power to transform uh, this system that doesn't serve us. And I think if we don't do that, um, then this, this divide and conquer shows up like Mark Robinson shows up in our Lieutenant Governor's office and advocates for uh, gun laws so that so that um, you know we see the continued threat of gun violence so that so that we make our LGBTQ young people targets of hate and oppression um, that that divide and conquer leaves wedge issues in our population 
Um, and, and so we need to expand what we think about, about coalition and, and specifically in this time where we're losing rights, uh, like abortion rights. I think that um, when we understand the common uh, the common interests of of women of LGBTQ people of Black people AAPI folks people with disabilities uh, working class communities then we start to have the kind of mass that can transform and if we don't then we wind up where we are which is where North Carolina is the farthest south that a woman can uh, realistically expect to get a legal abortion. Um, as of this summer, um, and we wind up with our school boards and in every county of this state um, being attacked and harassed by far-right extremists who want actually um, to erase the truth of the history that could free us. So on this, um, continuing on this, this point about engagement, and Marcus, you mentioned um, younger candidates, and so that's like the next level of engagement, right, actually running for office. How do we encourage our young people to actually seek political positions, right? I mean, you know, even at the level of school board and do their minds about the possibilities of being some of our leaders, particularly where money is such an issue, right? We've got money all, all throughout, very challenging campaign if you don't have financial resources. Um, and when we look at the, you know, the racial wealth is a role, urge folks to engage in that way when we've got the financial realities that, that they have to deal with. Well, um, first of all, I want to thank North Carolina Central for the work that you all have historically done around not just academic engagement of young people, but political engagement, leadership development. I think that's been a cornerstone of service uh, since Dr. Shepard was on those campuses, on that campus. And I think one of the things that I was um, very proud of last week, uh, this past weekend, as a matter of fact, on the campus of North Carolina Central, student leaders from the various HBCUs, public and private, descended upon North Carolina Central for two days of engagement around this exact topic. Not just how do we um, take part in democracy, but how do we own our democracy from a nonpartisan standpoint, their organizations that work on these college campuses to get folks to turn out the vote. But we're not talking to them about how to really run for a, a local office, be on a board or commission, attend a city council meeting. Uh, North Carolina Central has one of the largest marches to the polls uh, of all the HBCUs. And historically, thanks to uh, Professor Joyner, to Dr. Jarvis Hall, to other countless individuals that make it possible, uh, North Carolina Central has been a beacon for that engagement. Uh, it was an intentional investment in North Carolina Central uh, to have a law program that could help us produce judges or help us produce individuals that could run for congressional office that were people of color representative of the communities across North Carolina. And I think for us, um, we know that that investment needs to happen today. So creating spaces for young people to be engaged, to have an on-ramp into democracy other than voting is important. Um, we realize now that because of social media, there's a, a new pathway to education around some of these issues. And I think for us, making sure that we're not just preaching to individuals with the historical sense, right? Because oftentimes young people are not caught up in visiting the graveyard to talk about why you need to vote, but they are interested in visiting a housing complex that is being torn down where a high-rise development is being built up as a way to talk about the concerns that need to be taken to the ballot box. And especially April, as you mentioned, local elections, we know that it costs less to run for local office the outcomes are determined by less than five votes or fewer per precinct in some of these local races. And before you see a congressional leader, before you see a governor, you're going to see a board of education member. 
you're going to see a city council member and community. And I think one of the ways that we have see, um, seen individuals uh, work to engage in the democratic process is not by driving to D.C. or even driving to Raleigh, it's by holding these elected officials accountable. And that's that power and that direct transition of um, being a passive participant to an active participant that we've seen. And so I'm, I'm proud of the work that the young folks are doing to be in those spaces. And we got to make sure that those leaders that we're getting to run for office realize that they have to begin to turn folks out to vote in this current situation, regardless of what it looks like, because we have to engage with the system as it is if we're ever going to change it for what it can be. Well, we just have a few minutes left. Serena, was there anything that you wanted to add? Yes, thanks. Uh, I, I think it's important to name uh, that, that what, is, um, what is at stake here is the possibility um, that our folks have had faith in for so long, that, that, that we do have an opportunity um, in, in, this, um, in this friction and in the uh, uncertainty of, of the moments following insurrection is also the possibility that we could make good on the right relationship of democracy, that we could, in fact, do as we as we already know, power concedes nothing without demand, that we could get involved at our local levels, demand the changes that we really need to see where it matters, where it counts, and where we can see those efforts and those wins. Um, and I think that uh, that's how we grow faith. We don't grow faith by, by, by asking people to believe in the impossible. We grow faith by demanding change, showing up, pulling up at these ca uh, city council and county commissioner meetings, at the board meetings, um, and, and making sure that we're in the seats to say what needs to be said, to ensure that the votes can be counted um, and make good on this, this faith. Well, all right, we're gonna end it there because we're out of time, but thank you both. We have with us Dr. Serena Sebring. She is the Executive Director of Blueprint North Carolina and Marcus Bass. He is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina and the Deputy Director of Carolina Black Alliance. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at Legal Eagle Review at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show Legal Eagle Review Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.